Hey, we're in John chapter 19. Turn the page. We're moving over. I told Becky this morning, I said, uh, you know, sort of the way that I approach teaching and going through this uh, material, I said, who would have thought that uh, with the pace that I sometimes keep and slow down, who would have thought that in Holy Week, we would be in John 19? Huh? Don't doubt me. <laughs> All right? Don't doubt me. I am, I know what I'm doing. What'd I say? Well, you passed the test. You saw the textual critic. Does it say 18, really? Wow. I've been out every night this week. Well, it's 19. <laughs> now you can doubt me. <laughs> yeah. John 19. We're going to be looking at this uh, a, a section of study here. Boy, yeah, it is 18. I, my brain is flipped out. We're going to be talking about, of course, uh, this uh, event in John chapter 19 of the crucifixion of Jesus and on this Holy Week. And as we sort of move into this, you know, today, Palm Sunday, we, we celebrate lots of things about this day. Uh, this uh, week, we'll participate in lots of services and lots of memory. But, you know, uh, really, uh, as we move through this week, uh, the thought occurred to me um, as, uh, as I was uh, working through this material that uh, the days in Jerusalem that will uh, issue forth in the text and in the week uh, from uh, Monday, Thursday, all the way up uh, to Resurrection Sunday. In many ways, because it was the Passover, uh, it was an unusual time uh, because uh, there was at least uh, lots more soldiers in town and lots more uh, attempt to try to bring security. I can do this. And lots more security and uh, uh, lots more people, you know, in town. So it was, it was if you will, uh, that's going to stain the floor if we don't get it up. Uh, thank you. Yeah, uh, that uh, 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 lots more people in town, lots more security, but in a lot of ways, it wasn't a lot different. And when you think about it, uh, this day was a day about uh, Jewish agitation. Did the Jews like to agitate the Romans? Did, you know, there's Jewish agitation. Uh, this was a day where religious leaders were attempting to to, get, to garner favor from the Roman governor. You know, they were typically uh, trying to get him on their side or to help them out with uh, the issues of the needs that they had. Um, honestly, in, in lots of ways, um, this was not different because the Romans were masters at execution. There's some study that said that when Jesus and his family was coming back from Egypt, that it was about the time that there had been one of these first Jewish insurrections when Jesus was just a boy, you know, back when Bill was a kid. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, back, you know, that, that, that when Jesus came back from Egypt with his family, that there were hundreds of Jewish rebels that had been crucified along the road. And, and, and so crucifixion's nothing new. It's, it's no big deal. The Romans were good at it. They had, uh, in lots of ways, uh, 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 perfected it. And so that's nothing new. So, I mean, really uh, the Jewish hostilities, the Roman governor, the, the fact that there's somebody else claiming to be a Messiah and they've got to take care of that. It's really not much new going on. And yet when we read the gospels, we know something's going on. Now the, the, the normal passerby would just think, okay, this is just another religious celebration. Jesus is just another person that's got himself in the crosshairs of the religious leaders and the Roman government. There's nothing different about this guy. He, he's just another Galilean malcontent. And yet, there's something going on here. And in this deal, as I'm thinking about it, I'm working through it, I'm, again, excuse me for being sacrilegious, I guess. But as I'm thinking about this day, and I see it now through the lens of the gospel, this really is an important day and time. But for everybody else, it's, it's nothing. Thought of the words uh, from Buffalo Springfield. Some of you guys are old like me, and it goes like this. Something's happening here. What it is, y'all are a bunch of old fogies, <laughs> right? Yeah, something's happening here. What it is ain't exactly clear. 
There are people that are walking by this and seeing nothing but the everyday brutality and life under the boot of the Romans. And yet this day, I want to suggest to you in our topic today that this really is the day the revolution began. This really is the day the revolution began. I want to try to move our thinking in some areas that may be different, or at least you've had some thoughts, but there's some new ideas here. Now, this idea isn't, isn't a, a, a original with me. There is a book out by N.T. Wright, who may be the most prolific New Testament writer in our day, uh, you know, writes a book a week uh, and uh, uh, is, is one of the most uh, outstanding New Testament scholars in the world, uh, wrote a book about this called The Day of the Revolution, Reconsidering the Meaning of Jesus' Crucifixion. Reconsidering. There, there are some things here that I want to suggest uh, that we might, uh, if we take some time to look at, maybe to reconsider that what's happening here may not be exactly clear. There may be some things happening here that we've not considered or not thought about. So we're going to start in chapter 19. Pardon me again. I think I've got all the verses right. It's the chapter that's wrong. So you can doubt me now. <laughs> Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. Verse 1, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they gave him slaps in the face. Now, I want to start with this idea here in this day that the revolution began is number one, it was a day of identification. This to me, and I don't, I, 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 this could be the whole thing, but don't want it. But this idea that here in a backhanded sort of way, in a uh, unintended way, this revolution begins because the king gets identified. The revolution is beginning. The revolution of the kingdom of God, if you will, in contradiction or contradistinction to the kingdoms of this world, to the rules and regulations and values of the world. The revolution begins when it's a day of identification. What do they call him here? King of the Jews. You know what? That's the truth. Here's the problem with this is this identification with the Jewish people is they can't identify Jesus as their king because they cannot comprehend that this revolution begins with a king who's beginning to lay his life down for them. Remember, the Jews wanted a Messiah. They wanted a king that would come and drive the Romans out. They wanted a king that would put them back into authority and power. They believed that their problems were all political. They believed their problems were all cultural. And this revolution and this king begins to say, your problem is spiritual, and I've come to change the situation. So this, this identification, this really is the scandal of the gospel, I will tell you this. The idea that God as king would let himself be treated like this is unbelievable. Just think about it. I know in some of my uh, workings and dealings with people uh, who may be from a Muslim faith that one of the real hangups that people in Islam have is that God could never allow people to do this to him. There's too much glory. There's too much honor. There's too much wonder in the God of the universe. Allah would never allow this to ever happen to him or any of his prophets. Allah would never allow this kind of humiliation. And yet, folks, let me tell you something. This is the core of the gospel, that this is a God who is willing to undergo the humiliation and the, 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 the degradation, if you will, of this group. Here's the revolution. Turn in your Bibles, if you want to, to Philippians chapter 2. Go to your table of contents. That's in the front. When I see this, it reminds me of this great hymn. This is, this is in, in Philippians chapter 2. This is not just a text to read. This was, uh, from what we can tell in the original manuscripts, that this passage here uh, was a hymn that was sung in worship. It was sung in worship. Look right here. It begins uh, in verse 5. Have this attitude in yourself, which also was in Christ Jesus. Although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, 
being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death in the cross. There's an interesting participle here, a term in verse, uh, uh, verse six, and can be translated because Greek is a, is a fairly uh, colorful language. It could be translated like this. And because he was God, he did not count it equality to be grasped, but he humbled himself. I want you to think about this. Jesus being identified as the king by humbling himself and going through this, he does it because he is God. This is so what's confusing to the, to the Jews. They think because he's God, he will exert what? Power and authority. This God, if I can be so bold to use that term, is different. He doesn't exert power and authority. He exerts humility and service. You know, sometimes we want to power God because we want him to do for us what we want done. But this God, this king, this one who is the king, it's, it's because he was God that he humbled himself. I mean, think about this. When we think about people that are, uh, you know, uh, have weak egos, you know, uh, when we think of people who are insecure, what do they typically do? See, I can come down here. I can do that. What, how do they typically act? People have weak egos. Huh? They, they what? They can be shy, yeah. Arrogant because they're trying to what? Hide or compensate, aren't they? People that have low self-esteem or low ego strength are often will say when a person is trying to be so arrogant and all that kind of thing, uh, you know, that, that they really, they're insecure. I had a friend of mine, uh, or a guy, no, came up to me uh, a couple years ago. I used to be a pastor in Houston. He was down there when Wayne and I served in Houston. And, uh, and he came up to me and said, you know, Cliff, Years ago, when you were in Houston, I didn't like you. And I said, really? He said, yeah. He said, you were arrogant. And I said, yeah, that's because I was. <laughs> I was young, insecure, you know, no ego strength. And, and I was. I was, you think I'm bad now? You should see me then, <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, it was. I, my, my, my need to compensate was overshadowed by that kind of activity. I just want to ask you to consider this God is so secure and so essentially love. It's because he's God that he humbles himself. See, you and I don't do that, do we? You and I don't do that. We don't humble ourselves. A friend of mine said, you know, the way you get humbled, get humiliated. <laughs> Anybody up for that? No. This king started a revolution when he humbled himself, when he allowed them to treat him like that, knowing who he is. He goes, I, I, back in 17, we saw this before. Jesus, it said, knew where he was from and where he was going. I, I wonder sometimes if we're not careful that we don't see the revolution that began. We want to power God. We want one that will destroy our enemies. We want one who will help us get our way. And Henry Nouwen often said it like this, that the reason we want power is because we don't want to do the hard work that love requires. That's why we want power. This one is willing, if you will, in a marvelous way to be identified as this different kind of king. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. But we start packing it up with Roman ideas and Greek ideas and all the concepts of the kings and the rulers of the earth instead of a king who lays his life down for his followers. How would that change the way it formulates the way you and I live? If we knew that our king emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, became obedient to the point of death. I fear in my own life that there are lots of ideas about God that are power-driven instead of humility-driven. 
And it's because this one is God. I'm just telling you, look at that. It's because of this, he did not regard equality something to be grasped, but emptied himself. How, how would that change the way you view God? How would that change the way you would view the way we're supposed to follow him? It might have some consequence here for us to understand that he's identified. Okay, the second thing, I got to hurry. Becky's got me on a timer today. It's a day of conclusions. This is fascinating me. It's a day of conclusions, but I, I just, I want to drive this into your heart that many of us, this identified king is all power instead of humility. The second thing is, notice this, it's a day of conclusions. Pilate came out and began to say, behold, I'm bringing him out to you so that you know I find no guilt in him. Watch this. There are three things here I want you to see in this. Number one, it's a day of conclusions, no guilt. This is fascinating to me because all of the gospel writers record this. There is no guilt in Jesus. This this, This Roman official who's looked at the case recognizes that there is no guilt in what he's done and is willing to release him. He wants to release him, I think, it appears. And in this process, the writers of the Gospels are telling us, even the Roman government tells us he's not guilty. And you know what? I think this has some evangelistic purposes. I think one of the things the Gospel writers want to do as they write the Gospels and proclaim the Gospel throughout the Roman Empire is that we've got a governor We've got an official in Rome that you can read about that said this person was not guilty. That could serve some important matters in the future about having other Roman people to embrace this Messiah to say he's not illegal, he didn't do anything wrong, and Pilate, the governor himself, declares him there's no guilt. No guilt, I find no fault in him. Notice here he says, so that when the chief priests and the officers cried out saying, crucify him, crucify him, Pilate said, and take him yourselves. I find no guilt in him. Why is that important? Well, I I, I think again, all the gospel writers record it. It serves a purpose for those who will hear the gospel in the future to know. Even the Roman government would not accuse him of what they, the, 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 the Jewish leaders are accusing him. Now that, that serves purpose because here, here, here's the next thing. There's no slide. <laughs> These are all no. Oh, I'm telling you, this, it's wrong to get mad on Palm Sunday, isn't it? Here we go. One back here. Here we go. No fear. It's interesting. Somebody said, uh, Charles talked to me after this, after class. When, um, when it comes down here and Jesus, then he said, I find no Therefore, when Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. Notice, isn't it? He knew Jesus was not guilty. He says he knows that they're delivering him up for envy. He's afraid, but Jesus isn't. Watch this. And he entered into the praetorium, or that's the area, the residence of the governor, and said to Jesus, where are you from? (laughs) The the dignity, the courage, the humility that he's showing. And Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, don't you know, and don't you know, do, do you not speak to me? Don't you know that I have the authority to release you and I have the authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you above. For this reason, he who delivers me to you has the greater sin. I I think he's referring to Caiaphas. Caiaphas is the one that got the kangaroo court together, got everybody all ginned up, and he's saying he has the greater sin. But notice this. Jesus says, you don't have any authority over me. I'm not afraid of this. For this reason, I came into the world. Now, Charles and I were talking about it. It would be interesting. Pilate or, or is Jesus goading him? Pilate says this, hey, I can let you go. And Jesus says, you can't do that. Is Jesus fearful <laughs> that he might let him go? Is this Jesus confronting Pilate? 
saying, you're not changing this. You don't have that kind of authority. This has been determined by heaven, by me and my father. It's just interesting that, that Jesus sort of confronts him. He won't answer him when he asks him questions. And now when Pilate says, I could let you go, Jesus said, you can't do that. You don't have the authority to do that. You don't have the power. Now, remember, he's talking to the Roman governor here. This idea of no fear, no concern. What is clear is that Jesus knows that he's under the directions of heaven. And he knows that his life is ordered by the Father, and he has been willing to obey and follow out the Father's will. No fear. Some have suggested, you know, that Jesus got over this in the Garden of Gethsemane. That the fear and the anxiety or the, this, the, the, just the great sense of what's going to happen. He sweat drops of blood, sweat as it were of drops of blood. He'd worked this out and now at this point, there is absolutely no fear. Third thing here, no limit. There's no guilt, there's no fear, and there's no limit. It's interesting to me. As a result, Pilate, verse 12, made an offer to release him. But the Jews cried out saying, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out a king opposes Caesar. Now, this is dripping with sarcasm. Who do the Jewish people and religious leaders hate? Rome. Who are the foreigners that occupy this place? Who are the ones they are praying that the Messiah will come and drive the occupiers out? Caesar. There is no limit to human evil here. There is no, listen, I read a guy sometime ago, he said, whenever you're surprised by something you do, it just means you don't know yourself, <laughs> right? There, there's no limit to what we can do in terms of when we get decided that we're going to do something or we're going to be prepared. I told you that quote by Upton Sinclair, it's almost impossible to convince a guy of the truth when not understanding the truth depends on his paycheck. It's almost impossible. There, there's no fear, here, or no, no, no limit here. What are they, they're pledging allegiance to who? Caesar. Notice you would go down there. When, when, when again, therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought out Jesus and sat him down on the judgment seat, verse 13, at the place of the pavement, Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. That means Friday before sundown. The, the, the Passover is going to start at sundown, okay? And so it's the day of preparation for Passover. Some have commented on this, that every Friday is a day of preparation. It's a day of preparation for the Sabbath, it's a day of preparation for the Passover. It's just the day of preparation that you get ready for the Sabbath. And so the day of preparation, and he brings him out at the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, behold, your king. This is, again, dripping with sarcasm. So they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said, then shall I crucify your king? Look what they said. That's blasphemy. We have no king but Caesar. Nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be further from their belief system and what they have. But there is no limit to what they will do to get rid of Jesus. The utter contradiction of these statements is absolutely breathtaking. They prayed every day, the religious leaders, Jews did. They prayed every day that the Messiah would come and drive out the occupiers. Every day. They didn't believe that Caesar was their king any more than they believed they lived on the moon. And yet, here they are. We have no king but Caesar. You know, here's the whole thing. This is the day the revolution began. Because Jesus isn't acting as a king the way they want him. They don't want this kind of king. They, they, they don't want this one who will lay his life down. They want one who will come in and change the situation and take names, right? There's no limit to this. The Jewish leaders hate Jesus with all of their hatred and feeling. They want him out of the way. 
I've told you before that, you know, I, this kingship of Jesus, we don't talk a lot about it. Maybe, maybe we should talk more about it. The idea here is that this Jesus sometimes just doesn't act the way we want him to, does he? Wouldn't it be nice if he would? You know, I've told you, I've prayed a few times, and I say, now look, if I was you, <laughs> you ever prayed like that? You know, if I was you, it's a great opportunity for you right here, okay? You, I, I just don't want you to miss it. You know, I mean, I'm down here, I'm on your team. I'm, I'm part of the program down here, you know? Because when he doesn't act the way we want him to act, when he doesn't do what we tell him to do, he's not, he's not the kind of king that we want. I heard a guy say this the other day, this resistance to Jesus. What if, what if, I'm not sure I'd do that. He said, what if to become a Christian, because Jesus has this revolutionary kingdom, what if, and he's this revolutionary king, what if Jesus said, now for, for you to become a Christian, here's the one thing you have to do. You have to love your enemy. How many of us would sign up for that? This is a revolution. How many of us would say, if that was the first thing I heard about being a follower of Jesus, that I have to love my enemy? I don't know. See, this king, I've called it before, has an upside-down kingdom. And the Jewish leaders hate this. How do you become great in this revolutionary kingdom. These guys don't want that. How do you become great? Would Jesus say? Become a servant. Right? What did Jesus say? How do, you, how, do you, how do you get? By giving. How do you become a great leader? By following. This is an upside down kingdom. Upside down revolution. And there's no limit to the human resistance of that if we don't notice it. Now, I want to move on here to see. I'm, Becky's got me on a timer today. Here we go. It's a day of fulfillment. This is fascinating. It's a day of fulfillment. This is the day the revolution began. It, it, it's a day of fulfillment. In 17, we're going to work down through that. What, has anybody had whiplash yet to see? How, look how far. We've gone through 16 verses today. Just... It is a Palm Sunday miracle. It is. It is a Palm Sunday miracle. Yeah. I told you, don't doubt me. We're here where we're supposed to be this week, all right? This fulfillment, there, there's a word here that keeps showing up. You'll see it in uh, uh, several places here. This was to fulfill in verse 24 and verse 28. And it seems to me there's, there's several things happening. In this event, so they bring Jesus out, bearing his own cross to the place of the skull, which in the Hebrew is Golgotha. And they crucified him along two men, one on either side, and Jesus in between. You know, there's some pretty good evidence that in Jerusalem, in the church of the Holy Sepulchre, that this church was built over a site of a quarry where they believe that Golgotha was. And several years ago, when we went to Israel, I've sort of braced myself for that day thinking, I did a little research and study and thought, it, it, it's, it's, there's a high likelihood here. Several reasons, uh, because of what the Romans did to the place and others. But this craggy rock formation, they've built the church over it. And because people over the years would go up to them and rub on it and touch it, they finally put plexiglass all around it. And it's there. And I remember walking in, you, you, you walk in through the front of the church and there's this big marble slab where they, many, some believe that Jesus' body was prepared after crucifixion. People are all over it. I mean, you know, I, uh, just, it's amazing to watch people, how they react. And um, so we go around that and then, and then I just kind of steel myself to think, here's the rock, here's the place. Here's the location where on this day when Jesus was crucified, I'm standing there. I didn't know whether to hit my knees. I didn't know whether to throw my hands up in the air. 
I didn't know whether to just sit there for a while. I, it was just one of those experiences when you say here that they brought him out to Golgotha. And here's this place that high likelihood, high reliability that Jesus died. It took me weeks and it still has to kind of download all that. Pilate wrote an inscription on the cross and it was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews that read the inscription, they didn't like that because it was in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. So the chief priest said, saying, do not write the king of the Jews. But he said he was the king of the Jews. And Pilate, I think, had it with these guys. He answered and said, what I've written, I've written. That, that Greek word there is gegrepta. And, and, and gegrepta in Greek means it stands written. It's fascinating to me that, that Pilate would use that phrase because that's the phrase that the rabbis use when they quote the Bible. It is written. Gegrepta. It is, it's as I've written it. That, that in some way that, that Pilate himself is, is writing, this is the truth. This is the king of the Jews. Now, we, we can make this all uh, romantic and emotional, but this is, again, some radical revolutionary understanding of what it means to be a king. This is King Jesus laying his life down. It stands written here. What I've written, I've written. I'm just telling you, anybody to read that and see that in the original language, Gegrepti would go, wait a minute. That's the phrase that's used when scripture is quoted and scripture is written. Pilate here has at least inadvertently or unknowingly declared this is the truth of who he is. Now, I want us to look at this here. It's a day of fulfillment of the scriptures. It's a day of fulfillment. There's a couple places here I want you to look and we'll, uh, we'll do this. Uh, you might want to put your hand in your Bible there on Psalm 22. We're going to look a couple of places. Uh, the first thing I, I want to suggest to you is that Jesus being crucified is the fulfillment of Scripture. Uh, look in Psalm 22. Psalm 22. And verse uh, 16 when it says for by the way, you know, it starts out with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For you are far from my deliverance and the words of my groaning. Now, there's been a lot of debate about this because Jesus will make this statement, but let me just ask you to consider something. This morning, when we were first getting started, I said, something's happening here. What did you do? Huh? What the rest of you old hippies do? Huh? Gave me the second What it is, and exactly clear. There's a man with a gun in his hand telling me, yeah, it, it, listen, the Psalms were songs, right? And just like we do when we hear the first line of a song, fill it in. To suggest that the only thing that Jesus and the people know about Psalm 22 is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is to fail to recognize they know it all. They know the whole song. And as you work through it, you realize, he says, you have not abandoned me. You have not abandoned me. But here, the psalmist says this in verse 16, for dogs surround me and they're going to pass me. They pierce my hands and my feet. What does that sound like? Crucifixion. Can I tell you something? About the first evidence that we have of crucifixion in the ancient world is 500 years after David. There is no evidence or history of crucifixion in the Jewish people or in the area until 519 when Darius the Persian crucified 3,000 political opponents. How did David know that? How did David write this? You pierced my hands and my feet. 
because Jesus was going to fulfill the Old Testament. 700, well, maybe, maybe about 500 years between Darius and David, the first crucifixion ever occurs. That, to me, that's fascinating. That, that in a culture, in a place where David doesn't know anything about crucifixion, the Jews have never seen it. Nobody's ever used it. It's not part of the ethos of the ancient Near East. And David says just like this, they surrounded me like dogs and evildoers and they pierced my hands and my feet. Then stop there. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. Look at that, verse 24. Or 23, then the soldiers who had crucified Jesus took his outer garments and made four parts apart for every soldier. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide who it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my clothing and garments and for my clothing, they cast lots. There it is again. Jesus fulfilling scripture. David, hundreds of years before Jesus and 500 years before the first recorded if you will, um, uh, crucifixion records this. John Wesley makes this comment on Psalm 22, and he says this. This idea they parted my garments among them. He says this. No circumstance of David's life bears any resemblance of this. This is not David being autobiographic. There is nothing here in this idea of dividing my garments. There is no circumstance in David's life that even comes close to this. This is clearly messianic in its, uh, in its uh, 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 orientation understanding. Listen to this too in verse 24. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from me. When he cried to him, he heard. I want to just push a little bit here. And I know I'm getting, I told, uh, Terry Fix and I were talking about this, and I said, uh, you may see a petition show up. But I'm getting more and more aware of the fact that to only see my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is to fail to see what's happening here. It ain't exactly clear. The idea of desertion of the Father, the idea of actual failing to be with Jesus. I'm going to talk to you in a minute about that. What that does is it does destructive matters to the Trinity. See, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. God was in Christ. This is no man. And this idea that all we quote is Psalm 22.1 and we get our whole theology of what's happening here on the cross, that God deserted his son, that God left him, that he, that he dies alone, fails to recognize when he heard my cry, he listened. And Jesus, if you will, saying to him in the other gospels, into your hands I commit my spirit. The father's still there. There is the fulfillment of scripture. The crucifixion, the garments. Just, just let this settle in a little bit here. That the father is with the son. And the son is fulfilling the scriptures. And the trinity of God is not disturbed nor destroyed. Nor at conflict with each other. They are working together to bring about this revolution this kingdom, this new revolt. This is fascinating to me. Well, hurry, because I've, Becky, it's a, oh, I should have given you that, huh? It's also the fulfillment of the duties of us. I just noticed this. Here again, this king who surrenders his life because he's God. But standing at the cross was his mother and his sister, Mary, and the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and disciples, he loved. He stood by, he said, woman, your son. I don't know. I never, I'm not a mom. I've got a mom. But it's hard to lean in uh, for me to think about Mary standing there and Jesus just saying, your 
Here he is, stretched out on a Roman cross. And in the midst of that, Jesus said, then he said to the disciple, behold, your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took him into his own household. You know, the duties of a son here, he fulfilled that duty. Joseph, as far as we know, has died some years before that. And here again is this kind of king who humbles himself and is willing to take on this terrible, terrible experience to care for his mom. That is both the humanity and the divinity of Jesus. Finally, just look at that. It's also this fulfillment of 28, uh, this idea of fulfilling the scripture, I thirst. This, uh, this comes out of Psalm twenty-two, eighteen. But now, but now I want to I move quickly, and I, I'm going to try this. It's the fulfilling of the means of salvation. Over here in verse 30, after Jesus drinks this sour wine, which is a fulfillment again of, 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 a, of a Psalm 22, he said, it's finished. It's finished. Uh, I've commented on this word before, and you know this, but it's a Greek term that, goes beyond fulfillment, that means it is finished now and continues into the future. It doesn't mean, okay, whew, I'm glad this is over, <laughs> right? It isn't just, wow, how terrible, it's over. This is the idea that it is finished, and what is finished is that it continues to go into the future. Now, what is it is happening here? What is happening here? I would suggest that Jesus is saying there's a several things, that the means of salvation has been secured. It is finished now and it will be finished into the future. No one ever has to worry, will there ever be adequate means in the future for a person's life or for a person to be a follower of Jesus Christ? What's finished is the alienation of human beings to God. God is not alienated from human beings. He never has and he never will be. Listen to me again. In 2 Corinthians 5.20, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Listen to this. Not counting their sins against them. Go read it. I didn't, I didn't put that in there. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. There's no problem on this end, folks. The problem's on this end, us, right? Did you know that? That when God came in Jesus, he was not counting your sins against you. Now, here, here Cliff goes being a heretic. I'm gonna you, I think this has a formational understanding for us. I think for many of us, and I'm just going to get off script here and go. I got four minutes. Um, I'm going to just go off script and share what's in my heart. I got what's on my notes. But some of us have such a sin consciousness because we thought the big issue was for us to get reconciled to God or for God to get reconciled to us. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins against them. So what's going on here? It ain't exactly clear. See, there's been a, there's been a theory, this finished, I'll give you the technical term if you want it, there's a, there's a theory that what's happening here, what's finished is that Jesus had died, has died a substitutionary death for us to pay for our sins. It's called PSA or penal substitutionary atonement. It's a big theory. And it carries with it the idea that human beings are fundamentally guilty and fundamentally sinners and fundamentally rebels and they've got to be forgiven and the debt's got to be paid and the struggle with that is who is God paying Ransom theory. See, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I may mess your whole Easter up. Something's going on here, but it's just not exactly clear. See, what's finished here is a paramount understanding. Is it that Jesus paid for our sins? We talk about that all the time. I'm okay with that. 
that he died for our sins. He died in our place. He, 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 he took our punishment, our beating. That's the penal substitutionary theory. It's found uh, throughout that in, 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 first, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. I'm not saying it isn't there. I will tell you this. The penal substitutionary theory of the atonement was not the dominant theory for the first five or 600 years of the church. In fact, it really gets traction in the Reformation with Luther. Maybe you've heard this, but the day the revolution began, the church fathers and others taught that the theory on the atonement, what is finished, is called Christus Victor. Christus Victor. Jesus destroyed death by death. He went into it and destroyed it. When he died, he died willingly and voluntarily. And when he did, he destroyed death. Notice, it says this in Hebrews 2, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, partook of the same thing, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. See, in PSA, or the penal substitutionary theory, if it's finished, and I believe it, it's just not exactly clear. I believe that Jesus paid for my sin, and I understand that. But to only understand that is to miss what I would consider the richness of understanding that your problem and my problem, if you go back to the garden, isn't that we're bad. It's that we're dead. What happened when Adam and Eve rebelled? They died. What is the need for you and me? Life. People go around, they're guilty, they're guilty, they're guilty, they're guilty, and they try to live the Christian life out of some sense of guilt or payment or Jesus took my beating. I, I believe that. It just hasn't been the dominant theory for the church. Many of us never heard of this because Christ is victorious. Christus victor. He's the one who destroyed death and brought to us life. Let me tell you why this is concerning to me, and I'll, and I'll finish. I don't have to listen. There's a, a book uh, in our in our a bookstore called Across the Spectrum. There's one copy, so I want to see who fights their way to the bookstore. It's called Across the Spectrum, and it will help you if you're if you're more interested in this about the different theory here on 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 the atonement when Jesus said it's finished. But let me read you. I, I just scribbled these notes out the other day. Whatever, and, and by the way, it's funny, uh, N.T. Ryder wrote this book several years ago. Stuart Graham and some others helped us get connected with OC when they, they've had these great scholars coming in and talking. And I met, this hand right here shook N.T. Wright's hand. This guy's the most prolific New Testament scholar in the world, this hand right here. That's why I put it in my pocket. Uh, Dr. Wright has written several books on this idea of the penal substitutionary atonement, which again... I think it's biblical, but it's not the whole picture. And I had taken Dr. Thomas Oden, who just died last year, and Tal uh, and his in our class, and, and uh, we've got to know them. And I, I thought I was going to see a um, theological fistfight. Dr. Oden's about 80, was about 83. And N.T. Wright's about 67, 66. And I had taken Dr. Oden to this dinner. And we were going to meet with N.T. Wright, and so we did. And I watched Dr. Odin do this. Tom, <laughs> thinking, what's about to happen? Your understanding of the atonement must include the church fathers and Christus Victor. So I, and N.T. Wright goes, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> Dr. Odin really 
He really got after him. I don't know if this book is some of that result. The, the idea that Christus Victor, and around the campus, because I was there, we, 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 we say because Dr. Odin is as wonderful and as articulate as he is, he says to Tom Odin, I admonish you. So we call it the great admonishment. So when we get in trouble with each other, I'm going to admonish you. We're driving home. Dr. Odin got finished and we all did. And we're, we're going home and he's in the seat of my car, which I will never sell. Can't be bought. Right, right, right passenger seat. Never get, nobody's ever get in this car. And Odin is writing like a house of fire. And he says to me, Cliff, Cliff, get this note to Dr. Wright. He's got to read this. And so I took him home and I'm driving. I'm looking. Here I've got this communique between N.T. Wright and Thomas C. Oden, two of the world's leading scholars. I never looked at it, I promise. <laughs> this is the kind of discussion that's going on in the church to recover. Let me tell you why it's important. You cannot allow your understanding of the atonement to destroy the unity of the Trinity. I said this to a friend of mine the other day, and they wept. I didn't, I didn't plan. I wasn't trying to get them to weep. I said, for some of us, Jesus had to save us from God. You just let that wash down a little bit. And this person began to weep and say, that's what happened. I was afraid every night of my life. I went to bed at night as afraid God would kill me. Jesus, please save me. Jesus, please save me. Because God was going to kill me. If your understanding or my understanding, what's finished, destroys the unity of the Trinity, something's happening here, but it ain't clear. Jesus is God in the flesh. There is no Trinitarian disunity. They are all present. They're all involved. They're excited to help you. Second, this is more of my application today. Whatever you believe, it cannot obscure that God is in Christ reconciling you not counting your sins against you. I'm really concerned that a lot of us have so much sin consciousness that it racks our understanding of God and ourselves and we fail to recognize that Jesus said, I've come for you to have forgiveness. Is that what he said? Life. I've come so you could have life. If it obscures the fact that Jesus is saying, listen, I'm here not just to make you a cleaned up version of who you are. I'm here to bring you life. I've said to you before, and I believe this with all my heart, sin is always seeking life somewhere else other than God. Don't kid yourself. People that drink to excess or do drugs or run around their wife or spend money like crazy, what are they trying to find? Life, yeah, something to fill them up. Life, our need is life and Christus Victor comes in and dies and destroys death and comes out and says, I can give you life now. I'm of the opinion, thoughts and opinions as a teacher, not necessarily thoughts and opinions across the church, elders, leadership, that we're treating the symptom all the time. The symptom is our behavior. The symptom is our sin. The symptom is our activity. I told you I never ask anybody more if they're saved. I don't even know what that means hardly anymore. I just say, is there anybody in there but you? So it can't obscure. God was in Christ. I mean, think of this nutty revolution that on the cross is God in Christ. 
not counting your sins against you. Does that mean they don't matter? No, it doesn't matter. It means this, that Jesus wants to give you life so that you can live the way he wants you to live. Whatever you believe, it cannot fail to see that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit love the world. I know, Cliff, you're being a universalist. Yeah, I know, I get that. I'll just out myself on this one. On the God side, I think God is a universalist. He wants everybody saved and he's made a way for it to happen. You know what I fear is that those of us who are on the inside, we're a little bit like that parable of people who don't like it when people get in late. Remember the parable where people got hired at sunup, worked all day, and somebody got hired at the last hour. And they got paid the same. I wouldn't like that. That's not right. That's the revolution. Just, just be alert. I'm just, I'm, don't talk about me here. So just be alert. Listen, I got this insider issue with me that you got to come in the way I came in. And I'm inside and you're outside. And I don't know if you've done enough to get inside. You ever, you ever sense that in your own soul about other people? God was in Christ. This has become one of my life verses now. Reconciling the world to himself. Not counting their sins. You know what he knows? He knows they need life. He knows they need life. That's what happened in the garden. People died. And we've, human history, been the result of constantly trying to find life somewhere else. So, it's finished. It's finished. That Jesus has, in fact, both paid any debt that we have and as well for us to find life. So here's what I want you to do. I don't know if I have this on your hand. I want to finish. I want you to do this on, on Friday. Okay, I want you to do this in peace. Okay, I know y'all think I'm a hippie because I do like Buffalo Springfield, but this, I'm not being a hippie today. Okay, I want you sometime on Friday. Okay, what this stands for? Christus Victor. I want you to just flash that to somebody. Now don't do it. I was in a restaurant the other day and I said something to Becky and I, I did something at the house and unusual. And uh, I said, I'm your boy. Right across the restaurant was a guy with a hat on sideways and tattoos up and down his arms. And he looked at me and I went, oh no. Did I, does that mean something? <laughs> did I just call you out? To the parking lot? I, I'm serious. I'd lost my appetite. We took two and a half hours for lunch because I thought, I'm not leaving until that guy leaves. And when I left, I looked for him. You know, as he heading to the parking lot. Yeah. Victor. This Easter, don't carry the sin consciousness like you have. Carry the victor consciousness. That Jesus went in there through his death and grabbed death by the throat and choked it out and said, I want to give you life. On that cross, this is the day the revolution began. That starts working its way out in every relationship and everything in our life. And it changes everything. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. We don't have life. We know we understand that from a moralistic, churchy way of sinning and debt and all that. But it's way beyond that. It's way beyond behavioral modification, behavioral correction. It's, it's way past uh, just acting right and being moral. We don't have life in ourselves. And so on this Easter week, as we see your suffering and your death and your resurrection... 
that we get straight in our heart and our mind that you are victorious, not just over some payment or debt, but you are victorious over death and now you give us life. Help us to live in that. Help us to live in that. In Jesus' strong and mighty and matchless name, amen.